Hey, welcome to the True Alignment Podcast. I'm Edgar Papke. I'm Ken Sagendorf. We're coming live today in the Gronowski Innovation Incubator in the Anderson College of Business and Computing at Regis University in Denver, Colorado, and in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania with our guest today, Mr. John Knott. How are you, John? I'm doing well, thank you. It's great to have you here today. It is. And so uh, as we get started, uh, questions, thoughts, comments, anything at all, as always, info at truealignment.com. Yeah, let us hear from you and uh, you'll hear from us. It's kind of the way that works. So, hi, John. Hello, Edgar. So let's uh, let's do a little bit of uh, introduction for John, and so we'll we'll skim across uh, some highlights here because um, there's so much more to Mr. John Knott that we'll bring out during the conversation. So uh, uh, you'll excuse me because I'm going to do a little direct reading here. Uh, John Knott is an internationally recognized leader in urban regeneration and sustainability. He's the creator of the CityCraft process, which restores the economic, environmental, and social health of cities. He's a recognized thought leader and keynote speaker on sustainable community development and regenerative economies. He's a third generation builder and developer uh, with over 50 years of experience in urban regeneration. He's done some award-winning projects in uh, the Baltimore Inner Harbor, which many of us have been to, um, uh, urban areas in the other urban areas in Baltimore and the Washington DC areas, um, the Noisette community of North Charleston and South Carolina, and He's been advisor to the White House in the Department of Homeland Security on Energy Security and Sustainability. He serves as an advisor to HUD, uh, DOE, the EPA, and the National Park Service throughout his career. He's been named one of the nation's thought leaders for the building industry by Professional Builder Magazine um, and one of the nation's environmental champions by Interiors and Sources Magazine. John, what a career. As I say, the Holy Spirit has a wicked sense of humor and the past <laughs> never direct. So, uh, you know, here's one of the first places that uh, I think we want to um, bring a little bit of the John Knott origin story. So um, we know that your family was in the building business. Um, and, right. I, and I've known you for a long time and, and we have talked fondly of what you've learned. Um, talk a little bit about growing up in that business um, and what things you were particularly paying attention to then? Well, I think, I mean, one of the great, our, our business goes back to my grandfather in 1908, and we were we, we were a master builder. A lot of people don't even know that concept. With a master, the builder and designer were one. Uh, we all, we, buildings were understood as living systems, not pieces and parts. And the way our cities and buildings evolved over time were from the core and from the edge. They weren't all this hop, skipping and jumping and no understanding of um, balance with human scale and, you know, and, and mixed use. And I think the, the philosophy are, you know, we were taught, um, which I was very grounded in, is that we were in the human habitat business, not the building business. And we were in the community building business, not the development business. And we also, this is my language, is that we were always focused on the health of all those we serve, whether it was the community, the building we directly were in and the larger building or neighborhood it was in, or there was always a context of a larger community. And health was always defined as social, economic, physical, spiritual. And it was, um, you know, because the being in the human habitat, I was going to say, if you wake up every morning and you're in the human habitat business, that's very bit different than being in the development business. You, yeah. you start out looking in the mirror in a very different way. Um, and so I grew up in the field and I used to start seven years old. I was riding on the trucks and my, with our superintendent. And then by 11, I was working in the field. I, I mean, I, I, I really treasure that experience. And I came up through that route and um, worked as a supervisor and then ran our operations division in one of our operations at the family company. And the artisans that, and we had our own guilds. I closed the guilds down on our tra- internal training around 81, but uh, for 80 years we had, we were training gold leaf, gold leafers and paper hangers and painters and car- finished carpenters and marblers and, 
every trade that existed in the building and built environment, plaster casting, that was all part of our organization uh, other than mechanical and electrical trades. And so, I mean, it was fascinating because what the, you know, my father had a saying for our business, if not, why not, call not. And the way, got, I mean, but where that came from was that the reputation was that no one could figure out what was wrong. Call not, because they could figure it out somehow. And so that's part of where my systems training comes from, is the way we analyze. Because uh, a lot of people would ask you to do something, and as whether it's the residential remodeling business or building hotels, whatever it was, we were always asking why. You know, what, who's the client? What's the problem? And we learned over time that there was only three reasons to be involved in a building. Technical problems, client, cha- you know, change of use or change of user. And, uh, and you know, so we, we were involved in, when the Baltimore Aquarium opened, it had all kinds of problems functionally in terms of being able to, school kids would come in Mm-hmm. Backup line. Older people couldn't see because everything was. It was all, and we just sent it, watched that place for like three days with our teams and figured out what was wrong with the design and how the functionality of the system wasn't designed to work. You know, no play, kids come in with a school bus drop off and there's no place to hang the raincoats, to put the lunch boxes, or to put anything else. Or the signs are in the wrong place so kids can see them, and then they block it up from somebody else. You know, or if there's water leakage in a building, how did you go about finding that? It was really a, a so we really taught forensics as essentially a science building. And that whole process and understanding the building as a system, when we, when we moved to larger scale work, which we've done a lot of over the years, it was applying that same mindset. My biggest problem, because most of my history was in historic preservation and redevelopment of existing buildings and cities. The biggest problem I had was in new development, I, I felt totally out of place. I could not, I, I was lost because you have this piece of land and I had no frame. And what I finally figured in historic preservation work and urban redevelopment, if you have the existing city or the existing building and trying to understand what you're trying to protect and preserve right. and the functionality you're trying to enhance for the future. And in new development, what I finally figured out was was that the historic preservation assets I was inventorying was the culture and the ecology of the place. And that became how I translated from existing built environment to new development Mm -hmm. and to use the ecology of that place and the culture of the place and the context of the place. So, so two questions show up for me in that, because you're delving into some really great pieces here. Um, Aspects of design, of course, right, solving problems, creating great solutions. Um, the other one is to lean into the, the, the systems thinking approach in terms of how we design and how we look at it. And again, this goes back to something that we talk a, quite a bit about here on the podcast, which is you know what is really human-centered, or we'd like to think of it more as humanity-centered in terms of how we solve problems and go about doing things. So uh, I want to go back to something just for a brief moment and then bring you back forward and, and think futuristically about um, your experiences. Going back, you said that when you were 11, you were out in the field. What were you doing out in the field at 11? If you can. I was, I was, I was digging footing for, for uh, uh, concrete slabs and trash can containers. Yeah. I was, uh, you know, helping Carpenters clean up. I was, you know, you, I never you, get you were a laborer. Yeah, I was yeah. a laborer. Wow. Yeah. Well, I recall my days as, because uh, I started out in my uncle's construction company doing labor work in the summers, and then that evolved into, of course, doing doing different things uh, over time. He was a he was a master mason from, from Germany and then immigrated to the States and, and took it up here and very successful because just as, just uh, his quality of his work and, and technical capability was, was absolutely amazing, and he was highly artistic, 
which really helped. So, okay, I was just curious, what were you doing at 11? And, you know, what would that look like today? Of course, that's a whole other. Let's not get into that. Illegal. Yeah. Well, we start with that simple notion, right? Yeah. And, and, and I could imagine through the adolescent years doing that, you know, you learn a lot of lessons and you learn a lot about yourself, of course. And there's probably a lot in yourself that developed during those years that you carry with you now. I have a short story about that because I think one of the fundamental problems we have in our culture is we don't respect people and we don't respect the value of every form of uh-huh. labor and endeavor in our society. No one's more important than another. You know, the pandemic was unbelievable evidence of that. So all the people right. that we underpaid and don't respect were now called essential workers. Mm-hmm. Okay. And all the essential workers now are on strike. And people are trying to think, well, why is that? Okay, well, time out. <laughs> really, I have a love of acting myself and enjoy doing improv. And i got to tell you, I'm not sure. I guess, yeah, I guess actors are essential. Uh, I might get so, to the movie reference. Uh, <laughs> we can talk about that. I wasn't thinking about the actors. but you know, <laughs> I, I was, didn't think you were. <laughs> I was thinking about so, the trash collectors uh-huh. and, you know. So, the thing, I, this guy Lees, who was a laborer who worked for, for this master mason uh-huh. that worked for us, we had our own masonry, some people. They were just, and they were something, many of them were immigrants. And it, I was digging, and he, was, he would laugh at me as I was digging these footings. And I'd watch him get in the trench, and that guy would not even work up a sweat, sweat. And he'd get, and I was wearing myself out, and he had this rhythm of the work he was doing. I was like, I was like watching a ballet artist almost. It was like, I was like mesmerized about how he could actually produce all this work mm-hmm. and not break his sweat and at the same time have a perfect trench and a perfect place to lay the footing. And mine looked like crap. And I was worn out and everything else. And, <laughs> and he probably just eyed it. <laughs> but the, these artisans are, are, you know, the whole idea of, mm-hmm. in the Japanese system, where the, I forget what the name was, they can press the button in the manufacturing that they talk about all the time. And, well, in our business, that was always the case. The artisans were almost the rulers. Mm-hmm. Of, of they were, they took responsibility because we were taught we were in, in the human habitat business. You're actually in the business of developing or redeveloping an environment for a user. You need to understand what the user's needs are and what the real purpose of that is, so that you can assess as an artisan and a technician, are you actually delivering that in what is being designed? Yeah. So we would basically read they had the power to redesign and change things in the field and most of the time we never having a change order for stuff like that wasn't part of our business it was like you know our job is to deliver the environment that's meant for now we were design build organization for the most part anyway Mm -hmm. but it was our responsibility was not only to the health but to have an end result that actually worked for the family or corporation or for the manufacturing or for the city yeah. or the country, whatever it was. And it's always, it, yeah, it's always that, yeah, it's always that alignment to uh, that uh, customer experience, user experience. We, we The language that we're using uh, in our work with organizations now is to think of it as total experience. So you know, you, you have the artisan, you've got, you've got the design aspect of it, then you've got how that translates into the service of product and how that then of course aligns to that customer user experience. It sounds to me like you're um, some of those values that you learned early on. And when you were doing that work in, in the early years in the business, not only were you learning the business context, but really in a way you were, you were being affected to think about the system and alignment within the system and the context of all of that, which is really yeah, an experience. In, our, in the world of hyper-specialization that we're in today, that's not an experience a lot of people have. No, and I think the other thing that affected me, and Ken, Ken actually did a session with me for Lord knows how many days when he was debriefing, trying to help me understand my own work and my company and all that. Mm-hmm. And um, He's good at and that. I think I told <laughs> and, and he's... Um, but I've been uh, involved in social justice initiatives since I was 14 or 15. Mm. Um, and we've been organized I'm at Loyal High School Jesuit Prep School in uh, Baltimore. Our sodality um, 
which is basically a prayer organization, you know, at that time, the cell isn't even a term used anymore. But, um, but a, a couple of said, well, you know, prayer is great, but what are we going to do about it? How are we going to, and we started work, uh, I don't even remember how we got connected to Rosewood State Hospital, which at the time was called a hospital for the mentally retarded. Not a term we use today. And uh, and by the time I was 16, I was working. I'd worked on death row. I was um, working in children's orphanages. Within by the time we were in my junior year, we had organized, attracted 10 other high schools to work with us, and we basically had had students staffing in that hospital seven days a week. Mm-hmm. And we were organizing all that. And I think what I told Ken then, and uh, but between whether we've worked in and we did the same a much broader aspect of that at Loyola College. Um, I, there, there's also an anger in me uh, that still is present about all the systems that exist that are supposed to be serving and helping people in our society, be they, be they NGO or be they the building industry or be they the public sector or the nonprofit sector. So, you know, we were involved in all our high school and helping to turn around public schools. And we had over a thousand students work with us from multiple colleges. We, I've been running organizations and doing this stuff, creating crazy stuff for a long time. Yeah. Ken said something the other day that I like. I know there's a term used. I don't remember what you used, but, but it was really, I kind of chuckled inside because I said, boy, is he right on? Ken knows me pretty well, probably better than I know myself. And, but whether the, whether it's the Catholic orphanages that is abusing kids, or whether it's the whether it's the churches or the I'm not going to say synagogues because I don't know whether that's happened there or not, or the public schools where the teachers are trying to do a great job, but where we come in and work with that area to turn some of that around, the teachers are happy, but the but the administrative staff are furious because they think we're embarrassing them, and the right. teachers think we're and so, and whether it's all the people we throw into jail, whether it's um, work I did in the inner city with um, Echo House Foundation when I was in college, where I was a, a commissioned social worker, an idea I created to get a job there to set up a, and a set of initiatives with this uh, new foundation that was actually started by a Jewish slumlord that was third generation that was figured out that his uh, if he could get his tenants to be better tenants by educating them and helping them as well and understanding their problems better, he would have better tenants. He'd have longer term tenants. He'd have less problems. The families would be more successful. And I was uh, working with I had a youth group, uh, my youth gang, and I was. Uh, we had another group I was working with of. Um, women that we were training in jobs and we had the women working with each other to baby, mm-hmm. you know, daycare themselves with for each other. And then, but then we'd go to get them a full-time job and they get the job. And so the welfare system would cut all their income off mm-hmm. as opposed to a gradual change, which we tried to negotiate mm-hmm. or the state highway system wanted to just blow through route 70 into Baltimore and start condemning buildings in the neighborhood I was working in. I spent a summer, well, that's, again, that's breaking a... Breaking up families, yeah. breaking up families, sending their kids to three different cities. Yeah. You want to talk about, I had 100 kids in my youth gang, and you want to talk about a heart-rending, just ripping your heart apart and watching the system, and that, I won't say that. Before I take into that, that, and that's a and that's a story, I'm, I'm Milwaukee, there's a lot of, there's a lot of places where that kind of storyline is familiar. I want to take you back to something you said, and I'm curious. So forgive me for being so curious about this. You said you have such an anger about it. So you're at, um, you're in your seventies. You've got this, uh, long track record of, um, doing what I would just suggest is, is good work, social, social, uh, you know, social benefit that you're creating and all the work that you're doing. And now you have this, um, you said you know you you carry an anger. Uh, what you know, anger being um, a manifestation of fear. So what's your, what's your greatest concern that creates the anger that you carry? If I may ask, and I'm not sure if there's a. I think I, well, I don't know if it's for me. I don't know that fear, but, uh, but maybe the anger is the wrong word. But mm-hmm. it is. 
the reason I, one of the reasons I believe in systems so much and cross-sector system work is that if we don't fix the systems our people and buildings are connected to, we don't fix anything. Right. Yeah, which kind gets... So, yeah. So whether it's ecosystems or social systems and the infrastructure of those systems, right. we don't fix those. And what, what, what anger, when I say anger and my passion for this is that the people we serve for the most part, and we certainly have done upper income and not a lot of it, but you know, but any, any of our upper income work has been directly connected to poverty centers, even in the Weave Island, where we were mm-hmm. working with Title One schools and bringing them to the island, doing all kinds of work with them, and setting up programs with art museums and getting our owners connected to that poverty and to the human beings that are in that poverty by bringing those kids to an island. Tell me the last upper end resort community that you saw bringing poverty kids in every day, mm. you know, with the teachers to the island. Um, the, it, it's, it's the, this, it, it, the systems that are there that we're supposed to trust, whether it's a church, whether it's our schools, mm-hmm. whether the health system, whatever it is, you essentially, it's, it's gotten, our, our society has gotten to the point, it's gotten worse, where we've moved from, a, a business used to be, I'm old enough to remember business as a long-term endeavor. We were trained, uh, we were taught that the profit was not a goal, it was a result. Yeah. Great product and so, so, yeah. so let me take that, I, I, Go ahead, Ken, because I'm going to take you back to the future context that I uh, that I wanted to uh, explore with you, and I'll I'll hang on. Go ahead, Ken. Yeah, I was just going to say there's so many things in in that, John. You know, one is, um, and you know, the work that you and I have done together, that ability to see in systems. I mean, we see this all the time in our in our alignment work. Is that um, it's expansive work, right? And as you talk about the systems, really. And, and, and really, John, you know, I'd label you as kind of a social ecologist. You mentioned ecology, but, um, you know, as Edgar was asking you about, uh, about the labor and, you know, those of us that have any blue collar roots at some point were, were laborers, whether it was for a mm-hmm. family business like your uncle Edgar or, or just as a job. Um, there's a really unique experience about being a laborer because you, you get positioned in that place to watch how things happen. Um, and Edgar and I, over the course of the podcast, we've, we've often talked about the idea of um, apprenticeship models and, and when they work really well <laughs> um, and when they don't work as well, right? They don't work as well if somebody just has to sit and watch and learn on their own. They work really well when there's an interaction and you get to ask questions about how people are thinking and why they do things. And so, as you mentioned that, um, the ballet of even digging a footing for a concrete slab, um, you even said the rhythm that he had because he didn't break a sweat. Um, the idea that the, the people knew to change things, there weren't change orders, you just knew to change things. The only way you learn that is in a relationship and conversation over time. Right. And so this idea of, um, you know, being able to see systems, first of all, and then connected systems, second of all, um, requires just, I mean, that's almost a different kind of human being we are talking about. And I know when we've done the design kind of of what city crafting is, really, that was a program to think about a different kind of design. John teaches a city crafting course here at the University of Denver. And I've been fortunate enough to be a guest lecturer down there to, to talk to his students about what love is, um, which seems like a weird topic to talk about in a construction management program. Um, but it was about this idea of the interconnectedness of the systems um, and getting people to ask questions about what else is an influence um, and an impact factor on this thing we're doing. Right, and I think we, we have a saying that you know change is difficult. Nobody changes unless they can see the insanity of the current state. And once they understand the insanity of the current state, they have the ability to, act, you know, whether it's in a community where you're dealing with people who are impacted by that and part of it, or whether you're a designer or engineer, whatever you are. And I think that uh, 
our classes, my graduate course is organized to create that environment. So we, I don't know, Edgar, if you've read the book, um, Color of Law, the 400 year, 400 year evolution of the impact of law has had on segregation in this country and the racist environment. And I, that is a required reading in my class. And uh, understand the way all these systems are, are galvanized because essentially governance, uh, the governance systems of our enterprises, our industries and trade groups, our cities, our cultures, governance is what, like our constitution of this country, is what creates the framework and direction for how we will function over time. Mm -hmm. And that's why creating a governance system within your own company, which is centered around a set of values and philosophy, are critically important because you can't get to that place. And I used to tell, in my early days, I used to tell people who applied for work. And we, we got to the point for many years, we really never advertised. We just have resumes all the time. But I said, you don't come in here and put a cape on and leave and leave and put the cape back on the rack. Mm -hmm. When you come in here, this is supposed to be a place that you can live your own personal values within your work. And, and I, I'm the last person they would usually see. And I'd say, if, if you don't have that sense of value in your own life, you're not going to want to work here because you're going to be here not more than 60 days and you're going to be really uncomfortable <laughs> and you're not going to want Yeah, that's sad. And, yeah. and, and, I, would, okay, and I would say to also, I said, if you have a family, I'd find out about their family. So if I find out that you have a, 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 a teacher's meeting that you're supposed to go to for your child and you don't attend it, you're subject to being fired. Because our belief is that if we create the environment for them to take care of their families, then they will take care of us. That's a uh, really powerful story of uh, when you think about the spectrum of what alignment looks like. So an individual's alignment to the, their own values and, and, uh, and then bringing that into the context of, of an organization and saying, well, there's an alignment of that value to the organization values. And then to have that, of course, reinforced by leadership becomes so critical. Um, and that's a that's pretty much a pretty strong statement to make, is to say, you know, what, what's really important uh, in our eyes as an organization and as leaders, and we want to make sure that that's aligned to how it is that you're actually making choices uh, and that people feel empowered to make those kinds of choices in their own lives, and that there's a there's a true consistency to that. That um, uh, yeah, I mean, that's alignment at its best. So I, I think, but the part of the problem I think is we use the term organization as opposed to community. Mm-hmm. We, um, you know, we're in the human habitat business, community building business. So everything everything for us is a community, mm-hmm. and everything is human habitat. Yeah. And there are fundamental conditions for that human habitat and that community to be healthy. Mm-hmm. I think it's, that's, it's, it's, yeah, I, I mean, not to uh, be punny here, I think that's very much aligned with our uh, true alignment work. Um, you know, in that when we talk about the community, we talk about that uh, meeting that emotional need of the customer and, mm-hmm. and, and really having some um, definition around which emotional need you're trying to meet. Um, can I jump in with the movie reference here? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, John, uh, you, you said you listened to a couple of the podcasts. So it's a joke here that I always have a movie reference in each of the episodes of the podcast. And, okay. and they kind of come up in, in random places um, when we're having this, this level of conversation. And, um, you know, I will say that I, I love my wife dearly, but if we sit down to choose a movie, um, I can go read a book or something because it's going to take her about 40 minutes before she decides on the movie. She's going to watch the trailers. We're going to go back and forth between the different kinds of streaming services. Um, uh, for me, it's kind of like turn it on. If we don't like it, we'll turn it off. But uh, the other day we came across a movie called Somewhere in Queens. Anybody seen this one? No. Okay, so Somewhere in Queens was written by Ray Romano. 
Okay. And the and the story is his he's uh, an Italian family in Queens, and he's part of a uh, um, a family that owns a that owns a construction company. So um, it's him and all of his cousins work in the construction company um, and his nephews and kind of his dad runs it and his uh, brother is, um, his brother's like the foreman. So he is really like a laborer in this, in this company. And he has a, a, a high school son that's about to graduate and ha- play his last basketball game of the season that he's very proud of. And... Um, the expectation is that the son will graduate from high school and come into the family company. But it turns out the, the young gentleman is a, is a pretty good basketball player, and they're, and they're playing the, the best team in the tri-state area, and he pulls 22 points, and there happens to be a high school scout there and, or a college scout, and he gets them uh, a tryout at Drexel who had lost one of their scholarship players. So the family's really in ruins because they're – they're only thinking of loss. And this is why I bring this up. Not only does it have the connection of a family of, uh, you know, with, a, with a builders, but the, the feeling of loss because the lens was narrow. You graduate high school, you come into here. And so the, the stepwise nature of life was in there. And, and it turns out as, as the young gentleman's having all kinds of issues with his, his girlfriend and whatnot, he didn't really want to go to college. And in the end, um, he walk. I mean, I'm going to give the whole movie away here. He walks away from being able to play basketball at Drexel um, with the Philadelphia connection um, to going to a community college, and he turns out to be quite the poet. Um, and it is, I mean, it, it was, uh, man, I was crying big crocodile tears at the end yeah. of this movie because you found this young gentleman who had a life that was told to him, and he was really kind of exploring and that that openness is a lot of um that openness to letting life in (laughs) is what you do in the city crafting method right i mean you let life in to figure out where we're gonna go um instead of just having answers yeah my well we we come at everything with questions and we come with we come with no no answer lens at all and so you know, every, our expertise, that, yes, do we have amazing amount of expertise and probably solved more building and community and other problems than most people and have an enormous amount of wisdom around that. But the problem is, is if you apply that, you create a condition uh, with an expected outcome. And so what's your wisdom? Is, I, is it Aristotle or Socrates, the the one, the man of wisdom is one with the best question, not the best answer. Yeah. And, um, I think that, um, that's how you, you have a, 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 a non-biased lens for anything. And so you're able to, and this is really important when you're working in kind of, kind of areas Ken knows I work in, which are pretty devastating. Um, when you come with an asset lens as opposed to a liability lens, Mm -hmm. but not a predetermined asset value, but just an asset lens, you're able to see things that most people see. You're able then to see what other people are discounting or not counting at all. And the, the value of the human beings in a poverty community is enormous. A lot of times the unique talents that you're describing are quite remarkable and their ability to actually build a new economy around uh, is powerful. And so, you know, we are screaming, we need more job, we need more people in jobs and we need more uh, construction people or we need more automobile people. Well, you know, got two million plus in jail that shouldn't be there. <laughs> we got all kinds of people in these poverty neighborhoods that we're running over and building around and throwing out and moving I mean, just huge amounts of human capital and all kinds of ecosystems we're destroying. Yet, if you restore them and make them healthy, that's a whole new career and a whole new world. It helps everybody, not just them. I mean, it's just, and this is all capable of being done without huge amounts of government subsidy. It, but it takes a different, it takes a different assessment of where the assets are versus where the liabilities are. It really is. 
Yeah, it really is a matter of, of uh, changing the experience and shifting the mindset, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and yeah, in your comment, um, Socrates, uh, um, wisdom is understanding what I don't know. And so coming at it from that lens of inquiry and yeah, uh, something that we, yeah. yep, letting it in. And we, we, we um, you know, you, you uh, sound, my sense of it is that you're quite an expert at contextual inquiry and understanding the, the actual experience that others have. And right, but tell me what that is. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are, you are, I would agree with Edgar that you are, you are natural at, at this idea of, you know, being able to add to the wisdom by asking questions about what is happening. Mm-hmm. And that's how I teach. And that's how my students can knows they, and I don't teach in, in, um, in theory. We actually, every class is targeted on a specific real community in a real place. And they talk to real people. And even on mm-hmm. zoom, we've been able to, that. I've got classes in Denver. They're dealing with people in, in Michigan. And, um, I'm in agreement with you. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you on on that that simple idea that if you're going to do that kind of work that you're doing, the teaching, that the the case study isn't something that you put in front of somebody and say, here, read this and tell me what you think. It's more about having the actual experience that then informs informs the thinking. Yeah. 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 Very well. Let me, uh, I want to come back to something, um, that, um, I don't know if you uh, what you're thinking is about this, but it's something I have a real curiosity about, and that is uh, when you look at uh, when you look at it through the lens of you know building construction and everything that goes into it, and um, the rate at which we're uh, and this is the systems thinking looking forward into the future, at the rate that we're extracting uh, extraction of uh, resources whether it's iron or, or um, copper sand, and what's happening, of course, with, with the demand for sand and, and the level that we're, we're using it, and then, of course, the implications that that will have uh, societally, uh, socially uh, into the future. Um, is that part of the realm of your thinking as well in terms of um, the field that you're operating in? And, and if it yeah. is, what, what, what do you think? What are your thoughts and, and ideas about that? So um, I'll give you a specific example. Like mm-hmm. here in Philadelphia, uh, I've been doing it. I, I can't do this. I can't not do this. So I've been looking <laughs> at um, the homeless, the immigrant, the rep, you know, the sanctuary city, the mm-hmm. house and all. And, it's about a population of about 400,000 people. And what I've basically been able to assess is that we have, we have enough existing buildings and enough vacant buildings and enough underutilized buildings that if we were to re-adapt those buildings and redevelop them, we would not have to build any more buildings. We could house that 400,000 people. And if they were part of, as the human capital, of restart learning the skills and trades and planning and design of doing all that, as well as working on redeveloping all the ecosystem, redoing all the ecosystems to really become part of the climate change solution as stormwater management resources, as opposed to pipes and physical infrastructure, we could create resilient, healthy cities and build all new uh, economies around uh, landscape and um, uh using horticulture as infrastructure. And so we could actually solve a lot of our stormwater problems in the face of climate change, sea level, right, even at six foot level. If we, mm-hmm. if we could think at that level and utilize that resource. So I think that, you know, I spent most of my great first 20 years of my life in adaptive reuse. And so the ability to adapt our, our cities and adapt our buildings and adapt these doesn't mean we don't build anything new, but, um, we we need to go back to we. I live in an area in Philadelphia called the Bryn Mawr Ardmore on this mainline area, and you or a place like Narbeth, you come in here and you look at the density of housing, and you look at the density of uses, and they are packed and jammed all, all over the place. The amount of people that are in the service industry that are able to live in these well-to-do areas is remarkable, absolutely remarkable. 
and it's been done over time. And so you, you've got all this density at fairly, you know, we're not talking about high rise buildings, but it's about understanding how to, to mix your uses and integrate these different approaches so that we're not consuming any more land. We don't need to consume any more land. We need to decommission land. Mm-hmm. And, and this can be done. You don't have to move everybody into a, a zillion person city. You know, like Ardmore is a place that probably has 60,000 people and Bryn Mawr is a place that has 30,000 people and they're connected by rail. And different. It, it, we're, we're consuming resources of all types, whether it's water, whether it's land, whether it's gravel, whether it's whatever it is. Yeah. And we have enormous capacity. So, for instance, in, in, in the state of Michigan, we just were working at MSU on a bunch of studies. They have figured out there's enough board feet, like, like I don't know, five billion or ten billion board feet of existing hard growth, a sustainable grown forestry that's sitting in existing buildings that they're going to tear down already now. If you had a program to actually deconstruct those buildings mm-hmm. and bring that material in, you don't have to go cut more trees down. I think we're, you know, it's, it's, I mean, that's mind boggling. It is. Uh, it's uh, the, the most recent figure is 3 billion tons of iron ore a year extracted and then converted, of course, it, right? When we're talking about steel, talking about uh, the enormous amount of, of lumber, um, the enormous amount of sand, where sand has now become, I mean, you've got a whole yeah. dark side uh, trading uh, black market around sand now. And this idea of always building new, always building new. And um, uh, any ideas on uh, just the conversation of at some point recognizing that um, this this ongoing desire that we have, we innovate, we innovate, we innovate, and we're all for innovation. Uh, and innovation doesn't always necessitate um, uh, newness. Uh, per se, of, a, of of resources and use of resources in developing what we need and building what we need. This idea of of uh, reuse and going back to uh, resources that have already been extracted and available to us. Um, what did, what if anything would you? Um, I mean, what's your message? To, to anyone out there that's listening to this podcast about a way of thinking about that and a way of taking taking and acting on it? Well, I, I, I don't know that I have one message. The message is one is that we have an enormous amount of resources available to us that already exist, mm-hmm. whether it's human beings or existing right. buildings and infrastructures, and we need to use that and, and, and heal that first and use the people there to heal it. So that we're now, you know, we, we, we think in terms of capitals mm-hmm. and our, uh, the, there's, we have four forms of capital, natural capital, human capital, existing physical asset capital, uh, and financial capital. Mm-hmm. And we got to stop believing that money is the capital. The yeah. Money represents 5% of our capital system on average, and the highest I've ever seen is 10%. And yet money is the thing that drives every single bloody decision. And it's always designed around short-term thinking. So if we, one, and we need to get back to a bi-regional framework so that when we, all our systems and what we work on are based on, on being part of a specific bioregion that has a unique water condition, a unique resource excess or, or deficit problem, unique pollution problem, you need cultural issues, and if you get around that and design, you can now build. And if we're looking at redesigning an entire supply chain around a bioregional system, so that we get out of the global system and we get out of the national system, it doesn't mean you don't do trading internationally, nationally. But you actually, you know, why should like in New Mexico, it used to be something that was grown in New Mexico would leave go fifteen hundred miles away. And everything from the growing to the table, the, the, the table within New Mexico and the growing within New Mexico, mm-hmm. every single other stage of that process of getting food to that table was moved someplace else. Yet it used to be there. 
and mm-hmm. they've spent 20 years trying to get it back into that area, which has huge carbon impl- implications. Yeah. Huge. I mean, so it's none of this stuff, the ultimate design of most anything is understanding that expansion, unending expansion is not good design. I agree. Yeah, rule number one, great design is simple. And I think the other thing we recognize, we think in terms of scales and fractals, mm-hmm. so that um, I sent, sent Ken a, a lecture at Mepkin Abbey from uh, my sister, um, Ilya Elia, who's the Conley Chair of Theology at um, Villanova. And uh, it's all about creation and the universe and but it's every scale that we're at whether it's at the at the micro scale to the human scale say the bioregional scale every element all the elements and atoms and microbes of all that system are all related they're all one mm-hmm. and the idea that an impact we have say in a bioregion like the great lakes basin which has eight states an act in Indiana actually makes an impact in Michigan or makes an impact in uh, right. Pennsylvania. And our human, uh, our, I always try and tell our students and all, and I used to talk to our employees this way, you drop a stone in the pond and the pond, the, the higher you go and the, and the more pure you make that drop, the bigger the ripple goes. Right. Okay. So you have to think of your actions and what you do in that context. So that every every movement you make in the human world and the spiritual world is all connected, and like my youngest daughter used to still says, karma is gonna, is there. <laughs> so you might as well send out a lot of good karma because when it comes back, you want it to be good, okay? <laughs> and I, I just think that we don't understand that we're all in relationship, and we're in also in you know the. As a, a good environment ecologist or naturalist that's doing guides will say, you know, uh, oak tree became acorn, acorn became squirrel, squirrel became fox. fox I mean, you know, yeah. it, it all is in continuity. Mm-hmm. And um, we just, none of this is rocket science. None of this is rocket science. And it's not hard to understand. And John, uh, you know, as we get close to wrapping up here, I, I will add to that, but hard to do. I, you know, Edgar and I, we spend so much time talking with people that is this, um, you know, and Edgar pushing on me to to say, you know, these questions we have about self, these questions about how we have about self in relationship to others, self in relationship to the planet, um, to our work, um, you know, these questions it's not rocket scientists. It's not rocket science, but it's hard. It's hard to continuously ask and seek answers for those questions. It is because it's all the systems that we confront all day long are organized in a totally different way. Yeah. And the metrics for success are measured in a different way. Yeah. So, yeah. That's the And, you know, our, the constitution that we operate under, the short term, extraction business methodology that is extracting for a few and at the expense of many is not the way business used to be done. That's not the business I grew up with as a kid. That's not, I don't talk my own bit. That's not the economy of Baltimore that I grew up in. That's not the way business and business competitors were not enemies. They were friends. Well, might be why your cities are full of chains instead of local family run restaurants anymore. Um, yeah. Yeah, when uh, in a in a summary in a summary um, as we wrap up here, um, I I think this this the simple idea and powerful idea of recognition that we're all part of a system, and the need for systems thinking and to be able to see ourselves as um, interdependent on everything and everyone around us. And to come back to the the uh, the power of that through consciousness of that that we elevate our power of choice and to be conscious of that and the choices that we make and how we 
how we treat one another, how we treat the earth around us, all uh, comes back to that. And to say, what is, what is that greater um, universal alignment looks like that we're all seeking and wanting to come back to, or at least find? I think your your comment about that's not the way business w- was, and the way that business is, and how we see it in in today's context, is a great way to be able to question and to create the inquiries of how do we continuously move our business, our global business society to a place where we're thinking more through the system's lens and thinking more about uh, what are the, what are the positive ways that we engage and how it is that we actually challenge ourselves and one another day in and day out to just be better, be better in terms of citizens of that global business society. So you're uh, the richness of the conversation we're very grateful for, John. Thank you for joining us today. It's been just absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I really missed. I really missed Ken. I told him the other day we have to have more conversations. And um, I'm glad. I'm actually glad you're doing this kind of podcast. And thank you. It is um, the, the, the the struggle I have with universities, in particular business schools, is that um, we can talk all day long about ethics and everything else, but if we aren't, if we're, if we're, if we're training people to be part of the current business environment, and that's the major success that they're successful in that environment, we failed. Yeah. Because what's really needed, we need conscious leaders who understand what you're just saying and then know how to function in a world that doesn't work that way and still survive and allow them to be able to help organizations and themselves move to that future. Uh, in a regenerative way, and I just that that is truly one of my real frustrations with education. Mm. Yeah, well, think, we're, yeah, we're working on that, John. We're, yeah. We are so so and much, we, and we like to say the ability to adapt to change is to survive. The ability to create change is to truly succeed. So, with that, um, thank you again, John, uh, for everyone that's out there. Um, true alignment at true alignment. Uh, excuse me, at info at truealignment.com. Your questions, thoughts, comments, anything at all are always, always welcome. Uh, We thank you very much. Thank you again, John, for joining us. Thanks, Ken. Yeah, we'll have show notes uh, about John's uh, career uh, posted with the podcast. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining us, John. I'm Ken Sagendorf. And I'm Edgar Pavke. Have a great week. And live aligned. Thank you. (laughs) 